is from the book of Luke, chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because, of, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the reading of God's word. Well, good to see everybody uh, here. I know the weather is kind of kind of crappy, but... Um, Nevertheless, uh, you're here. Uh, just to reiterate the announcements that uh, James uh, just gave to us, uh, we are starting what we've been talking about, these focus groups that are meant to kind of uh, go into the survey that was just completed not too long ago. Um, because we want to keep them small, we're going to keep them um, to a certain number. But if you want to go and it's just over, over you know, crowded or booked, um, we are doing this the next following Sundays. Um, every Sunday, so there will be more opportunities for you to, to participate if you can't make it today. But if you are interested in, in participating, um, please speak with Lisa and Lee so that he could keep track of who's there and uh, how many, and even maybe do a little bit more scheduling, but um, that's just open to, to all of us here today as well, okay? All right. Um, if you've been with us for the past few weeks, what we've been looking at, we started with the story of Mary and Martha um, in a chapter just before this one. And now we're here in the Lord's Prayer. And what we've been arguing or trying to show you is that actually these two stories, these two events, um, are actually connected, are actually connected. And we've been looking at Mary and Martha and the relationship they have with Jesus Christ. Last week, we had a transition sermon to show you what is important, namely duty and responsibility versus beauty of Jesus Christ and God. And today, we're going to look in, as we started last week, talking about the, the Lord's Prayer, we're going to look a little bit more deeply in this, Okay. Um, if the statistics are right, the church is dying, right? If you look at the sociology, if you look at the anthropology, if you look at our country, the United States as a culture, the church, as we know it, you talk to anyone, is dying. Every year, attendance to the American church is on the decrease. Did you know that? There was a time where people said that the United States was built on the foundation of Christendom. But that's no longer true. Now, what many agree is that we're in an age of secularism. Secularism has changed the direction of people's focus. 
people's direction with regards to religion, any religion. You read any statistic in our country, less and less people now are coming to church. Okay, in fact, according to the Pew Research Center, every year, more and more people are labeling themselves as non-religious. Non-religious. Now, these statistics, I'm not sure like, how accurate they are. There, there are many different places you could find this. My argument might be that the immigrant church might have a little different view, but overall, that seems to be the case. The irony, however, is that in these same statistics, though the number of people attending any church is on the decrease, there's a number that's been on the increase every year. And though many people label themselves more and more as non-religious, there's an increase in the number of people who are labeling themselves as spiritual. Spiritual. The irony is that in this very same research, it shows that though church attendance has been shrinking, what's been increasing every year is that more and more Americans are saying they are spiritual. Spiritual, but not religious. In fact, did you know, according to a major global research firm, that one of America's top 10 New Year's resolution in 2020, one of the top 10, was be more spiritual. What does this mean? How do we make sense of this? And so when people say they're non-religious, what they're really trying to say is that they're not, they don't adhere to, they don't follow some traditional set of belief or, or doctrine and yet, they say they're spiritual, which really means that they are more open to something out there, that there might be something supernatural. There might be something out there. More and more people in our culture today are open to that fact. And the reality of this uh, situation is that back in the 70s and 80s, you had atheists all over the place, right? Because everything needed to be proven by empirical fact, by science, by the five senses. And that's how you knew something was true. But that premise has been questioned way, way after that so many times by many sociologists and philosophers. There are plenty of things that we believe in that we can't prove empirically, nor do we feel the need to. And so we're in this weird situation where we're now more and more non-religious, right? But yet more and more increasingly spiritual and open to the spiritual. That's why it's hard to find a true atheist through and through today, right? One of the results of this situation, I think, as we come to our passage, is the use now of the word God. Because it's not always clear now what people mean when they say the word God. And so in our culture, we just can't assume that they're talking about the God of the Bible. So when say, people say God, oh, they're talking about the Christian God. No. So on the one hand, more and more people are rejecting major forms of religion in our country. But on the other hand, there's an increasing number of so-called spiritual people. So what that means is there's not an incomplete <clears throat> or a complete unbelief in some supernatural principle or being or, or even a God. But neither is a complete belief with respect to Christianity and the God of the Bible. And so we're in this situation where because of the secularization of our culture today, <clears throat> if there is a belief in a God, even in the church today, it's what many people call a very thin belief, very shallow belief. 
that there might be something out there, a person out there, or a power out there, but it's impersonal. It's a thin belief of God. It's a belief that, yes, maybe something or someone is out there, someone more powerful, some being, some force, or maybe there is this ethereal world out there, some other world that might be out there. But the thing is, we just can't be sure exactly what that is. And so just because we can't be sure, the only thing we can be sure of is what we personally see and experience here and now in the world that we live in. And so the focus of people's life, even those who go to church, is let's just focus on the life that we have to live in the here and now. We're not sure what's out there, but let's find our meaning, our hope in humanity. Let's work towards the betterment of humanity, its systems and its government in our lives here and now. And maybe we can make this world a better place. This is a situation, I think, that many of us find ourselves and we went to live in. But if you've ever read the Bible, and if you ever look at the Bible, even in the story of Martha and Mary, you get a picture of God that's quite different. Different, not just from our culture today, but even different from many religions. And that is that the God of the Bible is not an impersonal, indifferent force or power or being, but he's a very deeply personal, intensely relational person. That's the picture that the Bible gives us. Isn't this why Jesus commends Mary for doing what she did instead of helping Martha? Because Mary's priority, if you remember, was very personal. It was relational. She just wanted to sit at Jesus' feet, to know him, to get to know him. Her priority was in the relationship. And when it comes to prayer then, and this is so important, what we said last week was this, that the priority of prayer is not just to get answered prayer, but maybe the priority of prayer is to get the beauty of the prayer. The beauty that is deeply personal and relational. Now, what I'm going to do in this passage is not necessarily tell you, well, you've got to pray more. You already know probably if you go to church, if you're spiritual, or if you're a Christian, that you should probably pray more. And that's not going to be the point of this, pers- uh, this sermon. But what I want to show you from the Lord's Prayer is how this prayer shows us the beauty of who God is personally and relationally. All right, three points. <clears throat> First, we see there's a special relationship that Jesus has to his Father. Second, we see there's a special relationship we have to God. And third, how those two truths ought to affect, ought to change the way we approach God and the way, even the way we pray, okay? So the first point is this, here. This shouldn't have to be explained, but Jesus is God's son. And the son then has a special relationship to God. Now you might think as a parent, if you're a parent, what's so special, everyone has a kid or Some people have a kid, and some people are parents, and we have parents, and so on and so forth. But it's very special when you look at the Bible. Because um, when you read the Old Testament, did you know there is no one single person or individual that addresses God as Father? It's Holy One, maybe the King, right? The Creator. There are places in the Old Testament where uh, Israel as a nation might allude to God as a father, and God is a father who cares about a nation of people, but there's no one individual that addresses this God as father. Did you know that? And here comes Jesus then, 
And he's going everywhere, walking around, preaching and teaching, and he's praying all the time, and he's addressing this God, this holy, sovereign creator of the universe, and he says, Father, just him. It's a very special relationship if you think of it this way. It's family. Jesus is again and again saying he's got family status. And that's the way he prays. He's always talking to his dad. In fact, everywhere in the New Testament, Jesus is calling this God, this creator, this master of the universe, he's addressing him as Father, Abba, Father. Isn't this one of the reasons why he irked the Jews so much? Who does this guy think he is addressing our holy God in such a personal and intimate way? But that's the nature of his relationship. It was special. Now, when you come into the New Testament and you come into our passage, not only do we see the relationship of Jesus to God, but we also see our relationship to God as well. Notice what it says uh, in verse 2 of our passage. As the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And what did Jesus say? The very first thing he says in verse 2, when you pray, what? Say, Father. Say, Father. Right? The whole Mary and Martha story is about the importance of a relationship and an intimacy with Jesus Christ. And then right after the Mary and Martha, you have this teaching on prayer. And in the beginning of this prayer, in verse 2, Jesus says, when you pray, when you pray, he doesn't tell you how much you should pray. He doesn't say how long you should pray. There's no prescription here. But he does say, when you pray. The word when is literally whenever. Whenever you pray, you say, Father. Not God. Not just creator. Not just master. Father. In fact, I would argue that this whole prayer in this passage is distinguished by that relationship. Because in verse 2, he says, say, Father. And then it ends this passage in verse 13. How? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? Father, verse 2, Father, verse 13, and it kind of separates this whole passage. I think that's a focus here on this, this prayer. Not a creator-to-creature relationship. Not just a king-to-its-citizens relationship. Not just a master-to-his-servants, but a father, a father to a son and a daughter. And the irony or the amazing thing here is this. It's not just Jesus anymore who gets to call God Father. Jesus says, now it is you. You, whenever you pray, whenever you come to God, remember to say, Father. That's what he says. It's deeply personal, intensely relational. And it's special to call God Father. Why? Because he's still God. Now, here's why it's, I think it's special All right, for us. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. Imagine you're a very important person. Uh, a friend of mine in California, a pastor in a small church, not there anymore, but it's in California. And on one Sunday, his church, probably maybe 20, 30 people at the most, on one Sunday, someone walked in and joined them for their service. Do you know who it was? Robin Williams, out of the blue, 
Robin Williams walks into his little church, sits there in the pews, and enjoys service. It was so hard for him to preach, right? And it was so hard to pay attention to his preaching because all I could think of is it's Robin Williams sitting behind me in the pews. When do you ever get a chance to talk to someone that famous? When do you ever get to, to, to meet someone that famous? You, you never do it. I mean, imagine you're something like that. Imagine if you're, like, I don't know, president of the United States, okay? First of all, if you're president of the United States, I don't think you'd be here at Sojourner Presbyterian Church because you probably feel that you have more important things to do than visit a small church in New Jersey, like, I don't know, like run the country, in fact, if you're a president of the United States, you're very busy probably meeting with even more important people, people with multiple degrees, people with many accomplishments, people with power and influence, people who are famous. And I don't think, personally speaking, I would ever get the chance to shake the hand of the president of the United States, even less a chance just to hang out with him and ask questions, because you're the president, and access to you is extremely limited. I wouldn't make the cut. And even for some reason I did make the cut, I'm not sure what I would say. I'd probably address you as Mr. President. Probably need to watch my words, make sure I don't say the wrong thing. Why? Because you're the president. And who gets to see you all the time? Only the accomplished. Only the powerful. Only the decision makers. Right? Only the most important kinds of people. Now, imagine you're the president but you also have a five-year-old son. Here's a question. Does your son have access to you? Does your son get to see you? Of course. And guess what? It doesn't matter if he has a PhD. It doesn't matter if your son has, has accomplished many things or how much power he has or what things he's achieved. That kid has access to you, not just access, but anytime, any time, any way, that kid could come to you and say, Dad, I don't like you. Not just access, but even more. Why? Why? Not because you're the president of the United States. Why? But because you're the father or the mother. And the five-year-old is your kid, is your son. It's unconditional. Unconditional access to him. Why? Because the kid has family status. Do you understand? Jesus says, when you pray, don't forget to say, Father. Don't forget, you now have family status. You have a direct access, not just to a creator God, but a God who you can call Father, someone who cares. You have family status, unconditional. You might not like praying for whatever reason, but you've got to understand this. When God says, call me dad, he's saying this, with arms wide open, come to me anytime you want. Come to me, talk to me, ask of me, because you're my son and daughter, and no matter what, you are cherished and loved unconditionally. Your family. Do you know this? Do you know this for your life? that you are loved and cherished unconditionally. Unconditionally. So Jesus says when you pray, pray and say, Father. And I think this simple truth, we need to get it into our heads. We need to really believe this truth, not just for others, but for myself. 
We need to believe not in an impersonal, thin view of God, not just even a master or a king, but a father that we have access to. If you want not Martha, but a merry kind of intimate relationship, you've got to set your mind that you have family status. Not a shepherd to sheep, not just king to citizen, but a father to a child. Now, you might ask yourself, well, how could it be this way? Because I don't really feel like God's son, and, and uh, I don't feel like sometimes he's my father. I don't know. I don't act like it. And sometimes I act very, I, 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 deserve, I don't deserve it. Sometimes we feel this. You know, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verse 36, uh, we're told this. Jesus is at the last, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the last days of his life, and he prays like he always does. And this is the way he prays. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Right? So there he is in the garden, and he's praying to his father. And what's this all about? He's about to go to the cross. He's about to endure the wrath of God, right? And here's what's interesting. Every place Jesus prays, he always says, Father. Every prayer he prays, he says, Father, Holy Father, Abba, Father, praise you, Father, except for one prayer. Remember Matthew 27? Here now Jesus is at the cross. He's hanging, and even on the cross, he prays. But how did he pray? He didn't say, Father. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Doesn't call him dad. Just calls him God. Jesus, the son, who loved and obeyed his father on that cross, was losing his sonship was being thrown out when he took upon our sin. Getting the thing that we deserved, rejection. On the cross, Jesus the Son got what we deserved so that when we believe in him, we would be the ones who to be accepted, loved unconditionally like a son or a daughter so that we would have access. In other words, on the cross, the Son of God became estranged from God so that you could, as Hebrew says, draw near to God. On that cross, Jesus, the Son of God, became like a stranger so that you could be like a son or daughter to him. And that's why Jesus tells his disciples, when you pray, you can pray and you can say, Father. Okay? Family status. All right. Let's move on here. So, all right, we go to God as Father. What do we pray for? What is the content of prayer? Uh, I'm not going to go into this. I could, I could preach a whole series on just the content of what this prayer is. But let me just summarize it for you this way in three things. First, he says, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. The content of this prayer, as he teaches the disciples how to pray, is that first, it's theocentric. It makes God the center. When you pray... Hallowed be your name, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. Whenever you pray, you're expressing a desire for the name of God to be valued more in your heart, in your church, in the world. That's what it means to hallow the name. Your kingdom come, your rule, your reign in my life. Your will be done. What you want from me, let it be so. That's the content of this prayer. It's theocentric. Secondly, it's also redemptive. 
clearly seen in the petition, petition, forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Right? Those are salvation things. Those are uh, uh, redemptive. That's redemptive language. And the last thing we see here is that this content of prayer is heavenly. Your Father in where? Heaven. Your kingdom. Where is his kingdom? It's heavenly. Your will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. So I summarize this whole thing. Uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. He says, first of all, get your family status right. Secondly, theocentric, right? Redemptive, salvation-oriented, and heavenly. That's the content of prayer. Now, here's the thing. Normally, when we pray, especially when we pray for things, it's for what we think we need right here, right now. What we're going through right now. And, and absolutely, don't get me wrong, we should pray when, when those things happen. We can pray. We can go to God for the Father to, for these things. But doing that usually comes natural to us. Nobody has to teach you to ask for what you want or even to ask for help. But I want you to notice this. In our passage, the disciples, those who are already following Jesus, are asking Jesus to teach them how to pray. Didn't they know how to pray? He, teach, he asked them to teach them how to pray, and then Jesus responds with this prayer, this God-centered, this salvation-oriented, this heavenly-minded kind of prayer. And I think the reason that he gives this model prayer is as if Jesus was trying to teach them, I know you have many things to pray for, life here and now, but if you knew your Father's heart, if you understood your Father in heaven's heart and how much he has loved you, how much you're to love him, if you really knew this, this is what you would pray for. This is how you would pray. And here is why this prayer is deeply personal and intimately relational. Right? Um, this doesn't happen to everyone, but my mother and dad immigrated in 72, and two things uh, that was rubbed off from my mother to my dad, which was a good influence, all right? Number one is Christianity. You know, when they came to the States, for some reason, my mom was drawn to the Korean church. My dad, absolutely not. Absolutely one had nothing to do with the church. And she just kept pulling him and nagging him, nagging him, and she came on board. Uh, she loved the church. She loved being in the church, and, and she loved being Christian eventually later on, and she wanted my dad to do it. He wouldn't have anything to do with it for years until my dad just went along. Why? Because his wife really wanted to go. And guess what happened? Maybe years later, he becomes a deacon. He's an elder. He's more gung-ho about the church back then when my mother was. He ended up loving something that his spouse loved because he loved his spouse. Okay? Sometimes that happens. You know, the second thing that happened this way is golf. 
right? I have an aversion to golf. I know we have a lot of golfers in our church. I have an aversion to it, right? Because we grew up in the South, and in the South, when I was in elementary school, my dad would say he would bring me along to his golf trips and take me to teach me golf. Never taught me a thing. You know what he would do? I would caddy. It was just caddy for him. Um, and back then, you know, we don't have these nice, fancy, lightweight, you know, carriers. We had these huge, leather, heavy, like 30, 40 pounds, and he has me, fifth, sixth grade, carrying it in the heat of the summer sun down in Louisiana while he golfs. I hated golf, right? Dad loved golf at that time. Mom, not so much. But he would drag her to the range. He would drag her to watch him shoot and play. He would drag her to the putting range, and he would teach, and she would learn, and she would just go along with it. Why did she do it? She didn't like golf in the beginning, but she loved my dad who loved golf. So she went along, and she ends up liking golf. Now both of them were golfing every day. Dad's 83 now. He just called me yesterday because he lost his wallet, didn't know what to do. <laughs> you know, so he doesn't play golf anymore. Uh, he's just gotten old. But it happens. Sometimes the way you end up loving something is because of a person who loves it. Here's why this prayer, this prayer, I think, is so intimate and relational, and it shows our relationship with God. Theocentric, God-centered, salvation-oriented, heavenly-minded kind of prayer, praying for these kinds of things, that's the content of prayer? Here's the truth. You're not going to pray like this. You cannot pray like this. You will not pray like the Lord's Prayer in any genuine way. You won't pray like this unless you have the same concerns, the same priorities, and the same desires of your Father who is in heaven. You will not be able to pray this way unless you remember you have family status, unless you see his beauty and fall in love with him Unless you do this, it will be very difficult to love what he loves. If you only have a thin view of God, and if or when you pray, you only pray for things what you think you need here and now, then sometimes what God wants, or what anyone else wants for that matter, can sound oppressive, it can sound restrictive, it can sound burdensome, unsatisfying, even unloving. Why? Because sometimes when you pray for what you want, God could say no. God could say no. He could say no to what you want, and then what do you have? You have a conflict of interest, don't you? It's now your desires up against his. But if you have not a thin view of God, but a deeper, more personal, relational view of God, if you love Father, then guess what? you also begin to open doors to love the things that he also loves. His priorities now suddenly become yours. His desires now become yours. His will now becomes yours. And I think this is why this prayer is called the Lord's Prayer. Not because this is what Jesus prays. It's not for him. He's giving it to the disciples. But it's called the Lord's Prayer, I think, because it reveals the Lord's heart, and desires. And he asked the disciples and all of us who call God Father to pray with the Father's heart. When we get a glimpse 
of the beauty and the wonder of who God is in the Father and his love for us, guess what? That not only changes the way you approach God, that changes the way you also pray. It changes the way you pray. When you pray now, it's not just asking for things, but you pray like the psalmist. You say, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for thee. You pray like Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. When you see who God is as your father this way, you pray different. You pray like the hymn that we sometimes sing. Fair is the sunshine, fair is the moonlight, and all the twinkling starry hosts, but Jesus shines brighter. Jesus more purer than all the heavens can boast. Fair are the meadows, fair are the woodlands, robed in the blooming garb of spring, but Jesus is fair. Jesus is pure, who makes the woeful heart to sing. When you grasp a picture of who God is this way, a Father in heaven who cares for you, who knows what's best for you, who's shown it to you by giving up his only son to make you his, you come to God and you can pray, Lord, we long to see you honored more and more in our life, in our church. Lord, we pray that you'd cause your name to be hallowed among us, magnify your worth and your glory in our life and in our midst. Let your kingdom come and let your rule more fully take over our life and our families and our church. This is how you could pray, and there's a thousand ways you could say that. Now, let me just end with this. If this feels foreign to you, if you never plead for the name of God to be hallowed, or the kingdom of God to come, then here's what you do. Go to your Father. Go to your Father in heaven and ask, help me to pray like this. Help me to see you for you. Remind me again of the beauty and the wonder and all the goodness that you are and have been in my life so that I may hallow your name, not just in my life, but also in my praying. Let's pray. Father, we are people who, if we've been going to church for a long time, we tend to see what we do as Christians as, as, as just more things we need to do, more things we've got to participate more in, more things that we are responsible for. We lose sight oftentimes of the forest for the trees. We, we get lost in the details of our lives for the bigger picture of what you've said and done for us. We forget why we do what we do, and we are in the routine of things. But Lord, we pray now and then that you would remind us again, not just of our duties and responsibilities, whether it's to our family, our children, uh, our parents, whether it's to our work, or, or even whether it's to the church. Don't just remind us of our duties, Lord. Remind us of who you are in all your glory and wonder and beauty. Help us again and again a little bit more to a glimpse of, of that wonder, of the amazing grace that you've shown to us, of the, of the ability to be able to even pray and call you Father like, like nobody else did in history except for your son, Jesus Christ. So we come to you as your children who are in need of more patience, in need of grace, in need of, 
of, of, of just of discipline and, and um, correction, but also in need of your love and mercy. And we come to you, not just as God who's created us, but Lord, a God who saved us. And sometimes we cry out to you, and sometimes we complain to you, and sometimes, like children, we only ask for things from you. But Lord, as we grow in our faith, as you grow it in us, we pray that we come to you for you. As we more mature in our faith, we pray that we would pray what you have taught us to pray. Not just what our heart desires are, but Lord, what is yours? Your kingdom, your will, your salvation, your work, your person, your son. Let that grow more and more so that we might continue to engage with you more and more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.